I would invite you this morning, if you have them with you in whatever form you happen to have them, to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. I told you last week we would be probably three sermons in Romans 8. This is number two. Have you ever experienced a time that you just thought, if this never ended, my life would be great right here? Maybe it was just a special day that was, everything was perfect. The, the weather was perfect. The, the, the things that you had arranged for that day all happened the right way. And it, you just ended that day with this deep sense of satisfaction. Maybe it was a vacation. Maybe you traveled and you went somewhere that was just beautiful and, and, and every day was just what you had hoped. If, if you would have written the script, you couldn't have written it any better and you just hoped, thought, man, if this vacation never ended, maybe you have that place that you call your happy place. Uh, Maybe it's around the table with the entire family together. And in that moment, everybody getting along and there's laughter and conversation. Maybe for you, it's a mountain cabin where you can just sit on the porch on a nice rocking chair or better yet, in a hammock. And you can just listen to nature around you, read a book, relax. Maybe for you, it's... Laying in a hammock, I remember many years ago I taught at a Bible college in Guyana, South America. And the Bible college and the house where the friends, the, the compound, was right on the ocean. I mean, just walked across the, the road over the seawall and there was the ocean. And then the classes were at night because all of the students worked during the day. And I remember one afternoon I was out on the veranda of this this place where I was staying, and they had a great big hammock, and I had a John Grisham novel, and I literally laid out on the hammock and just rocked a little bit, felt the ocean breeze, heard the waves crashing, and read my novel, and I thought, if only Charlene were here and we could just be here independently wealthy for the rest of our lives, this would be amazing. Those times... I've often called those slices of heaven. Slices of, slices of heaven that you say, this is just right. But in real life, those times have to come to an end. In real life, we have to pack our suitcases and catch the shuttle to the plane that takes us back to O'Hare and we fight the Chicago traffic to get home. In real life, we have to pack the kids into the car and leave the cabin behind and drive home. In real life, those moments of idyllic time around the table are sometimes broken by one of the younger children yelling, Mom, he hit me! And we know that our children are acting just like what they inherited from their spouse's side of the family. And it, it just seems in real life, good times, as good as they are, come to an end. And then add to that what we find when we get back to reality. We live in a broken and confused world. It seems that there is conflict everywhere. 
we can look at Sudan or Ukraine and just say, wow. Or the, the whole debate over the debt ceiling in Washington, each side posturing. And, and, and then you add to that multiple tragedies, the pileup on I-55 just last week. You, the seemingly random acts of violence, as I mentioned in my prayer, the, the shooting at the outlet mall in, in Dallas. And then pile on to that. For some of us who are kind of class, old-time classic rock music lovers, Gordon Lightfoot dies this past week. And if you're like me, you sat and just scrolled through your Spotify or your Amazon music and you just listened to some of his songs. My all-time favorite is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. A powerful song. And there's, that's the stuff we know about. That's the stuff that makes the news. There are so many things that we don't know about. Our sign out there still says, Be gentle. Many wounds are hidden. How can I possibly entitle this sermon, The Best is Yet to Come in a World that is So Broken? I think we're going to find some direction as we look at the passage we've just read. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Last week, we ended with two very important and powerful reminders. First, we ended with the reminder that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are adopted by the Holy Spirit into the family of God, and, and our Heavenly Father, we can cry out, Abba, uh, an Aramaic term that means Daddy. And, and we, we are welcomed by our Heavenly Father with open arms. And, and we have all the rights of being a child in His home that includes being joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And, and as part of that reminder, Paul builds on that. And we're reminded that not only are we in his family and we have all that air, we're reminded that we have more to come. I want to give you this morning's sermon in one sentence. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to circle back to that sentence. If I were to take all of Romans 18, verse 8, verses 18 to 30, and summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. God works through the struggles in our world and our individual lives to mold us into being more like Jesus. God works through the struggles in our world and in our own individual lives to mold us into being more like Jesus. I was very selective in my wording here because it's important to note that I said God works, not God works causes. As we'll see in a moment, God does not bring about the suffering or the painful experiences. He works through them. Twice today, I'm going to begin a principle with these words. Please don't. Here's the first one. Please don't think you're ever encouraging someone by saying to them something like, God must have caused you to get sick so that you could learn something from him. That's not an encouragement. God must have caused you to be in that accident so that he could teach you a lesson. God must have caused you to lose your job so that he could teach you 
That's not our God. God is our Abba Father. He's our, he does not go around hurting or tormenting his children just so they can learn something. We live in a broken world. Bad stuff happens, and that's what we see here in Romans chapter 8. And the first point I think the Apostle Paul makes, beginning in, in verse 18, is simply this. We all long for things to be better. We all long for things to be better. And he starts out, he says, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says, there is a far better time coming. And, and remember, in the verse just before that, he talked about we share in Christ's sufferings. Not necessarily share in we go to a cross and we're crucified, but we share in his sufferings. Jesus suffered more than just on the cross. How many times did he say to his disciples, oh, you of little faith, don't you get it? How many times did he look at the world, and we saw it on Easter Sunday, he stood at the grave of Lazarus, and he looked at the grief around him, and he wept, he suffered. How long, and We long for things to get better, and Paul says, listen, what we're suffering, and he doesn't minimize it, but there's something better coming. There is glory to be revealed. There's a far better time coming. The word translated sufferings is a word that in its simplest form means to experience. It means to experience misfortune or hardship. It's a word that indicates that this experience comes from the outside. In other words, it's not necessarily a choice. I get it. We all suffer from our own choices too. And that is bad enough, but we also suffer from things that we have no control over. Paul acknowledges that the struggle of life, and he says there's something to look forward to. And he goes on and he says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You may ask, I thought we were already children of God because you said last week that we are children of God when we come into faith and we're brought into the family. Yes, but all that we are to be in Christ has not yet been revealed. We come into that faith relationship as children of God, but we still struggle, we still suffer, we still get sick. And so... The creation says, I want to see that inheritance. I want to see all that we're to be, to be revealed. So creation struggles. Paul says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it. The creation was subjected to frustration when Adam sinned. We call it Genesis 3. We call it the fall the thing we have to always remind ourselves is everything fell. Everything. And so when sin entered the world, it messed up everything, including planet Earth. And verses 20 through 22 continue to describe that. He says, the one who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. Paul says the creation has just been groaning. It's been agonizing. 
And, and he uses it, and he uses the pains of childbirth as his example. Creation is frustrated in bondage and decay. That was not God's original design. When God created humanity, he gave humanity very clear parameters, very clear boundaries, and very clear consequences for violating those boundaries. And he said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And when that happened, everything, including creation, suffered death. In fact, if I go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and look at what's called sometimes the cultural mandate, that humanity was created to build a culture. I believe humanity, Adam and Eve, and, and all of the rest of us were designed by God to be his representatives on earth. That's what it meant in the ancient world to be made in the image of. You're made as the representative of God's representatives on earth and given all of the, the, the brain power to take God's raw material that this earth has been full of and rich with and turn it into something beautiful that would reflect his glory. Someone said the Bible begins in the perfect garden and ends in the perfect city. And we were to be part of that process. But what happened when sin came along is humanity exploited, used, and abused God's creation. So apart from the ills of humanity, we have a world that is in decay. We have earthquakes. I don't think God designed the earth so the tectonic plates would just shift at random. I think that's part of the decay. We have floods, we have tornadoes, we have hurricanes and volcanoes. And some of that is the result of selfish humanity, but some of that is just because the earth right now is not what it was designed to be because of the frustration of sin. That's why in Revelation we read there's going to one day be a new heaven and a new earth. The earth groans in the pains of childbirth, Paul says. I've been in the delivery room three times. I have the utmost respect and pride and love for my wife who went through the pains of childbirth. But at the end of the pain was the joy of birth, was the joy of those children, those children who've grown up, who've grown up and given us even a better gift, grandchildren. And, and, and they're living their lives as adults now. It's, it's really to see that process. And so... There's something better coming. We all groan for something better. We eagerly look for that which is better. Paul says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The redemption of our bodies. I won't make you raise your hand. But how many of us hurt in some place 
in our body, and we don't know why. You know, have you ever, have you ever kind of said, oh, man, the old shoulder hurts here. What did I do? I have no idea. The shoulder just hurts. You know, or, or you, you know, every now and then I'll start walking and go, oh, man, what did I do to my knee? You know, I want my body to be redeemed. <laughs> I, I, I want my body to be whole and healthy. We long for that. We groan for something better. And sometimes in our human foolishness, we think that maybe if we can give ourselves all of the joys and all of the pleasures and all of the positive experiences that our world says are going to make us happier, that maybe we can create heaven on earth right now. But then that tornado takes out our forever home. A wildfire destroys our hideaway. A tree falls on our brand new car, and we long for more, long for that which is better. Paul reminds us that's why we have hope. God gives us hope. We hope far more than whether our team will win. We hope for far more than whether the kids will come home for Christmas. Great things. We hope. We hope for the redemption of our bodies, for the final adoption to sonship, for the being able to see him face to face. The song we sang says, he will return at last, we'll see him face to face. Paul says that's our hope. That hope is the redemption for which we've been saved. That hope is coming, it's not yet present. That hope is a longing, but in, in biblical terms, hope is not just a wish. It's a longing based on the certainty of God's promises. And so we long for things to get better as we patiently wait on God and on the God who has a plan. And when we patiently wait on the God who has a plan, we realize that God works through the struggles in our world and in our own individual lives to mold us into being more like Jesus. And we understand as we move into verse 26 this, we are uniquely understood and strengthened by God from within. I've done a whole lot of funerals in the past 35, 36 years. Let's see, 1985 to 2023. Ooh, 38 years. Uh, I've done a whole lot of funerals. And I've done funerals for people that, that walked with the Lord. And I've done funerals for people that I had no clue. And sometimes somebody will come along and say, Pastor Scott, how do people make it without Christ? How do they handle it? How do they get through? You know what they do? They do. They find ways to cope. Uh, but sometimes for any of us, the frustrations seem insurmountable. Sometimes for any of us, the painful experiences feel suffocating. Sometimes the grief hits you like a wave and you weren't expecting it. Sometimes the cruelty of humanity makes you say things like, I'm about ready to lose my faith in humanity, to which I would say that's really not where our faith should be. Paul knew the struggles and he knew the desire for his readers to want more. And he reminds them of this truth. Look at verse 26. 
in the same way, in the same way that as we hope, in the same way that we long for something better, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. As we long and groan for something more, something better, so does the Holy Spirit, so does God, and God's bringing it about in His timing, and that timing is foreign to us because we want it now. And sometimes we struggle, and God says the Holy Spirit helps us. You see, God knows we're weak. God knows we struggle. God knows we need help. He knows what we long for. And sometimes we just don't know how to pray. Sometimes in the middle of a struggle, we're at a loss for words. Sometimes we may be just too physically exhausted to even think. Sometimes the grief has just shut us down. And in those moments, the Spirit steps in. The Spirit is our go-between. Jesus said He's a comforter. He's our intercessor. And He prays for us and He groans with us. What a, what a reminder. I once taught a class at Grace Seminary called Counseling Adolescence. And it was a, a very intensive class. It was, it was a two-hour credit, and we crammed it all into one week. So lectures every day from 8 in the morning till 3 or 4 in the afternoon, they would have assignments and all. One day we got together class and one of the guys came in and you could tell he was dragging. I think he was already on his third cup of coffee. And, and he said, man, it's been rough. I said, what happened? What's going on? He goes, well, the mother of a couple of my youth kids passed away last night. I've been at the hospital all night. And he said, prof, he said, I, I sat there with those two boys and I did not even know what to say. I said, so what did you say? He said, I didn't say anything. I just sat with them all night long. And I said, you know what? You did the best thing. You see, sometimes God, the Holy Spirit, just sits with us in our struggle, in our concern, in our hard times, and sometimes he doesn't speak to us. He just is there. But he prays for us. He prays for us. He groans with us. I want you to know today, you are not invisible to God. I want you to know today, you don't have to have it all figured out. I want you to know today there are going to be many times, there have been and they're still coming, when you have no easy answers. I want you to know today that there are times when you and I will wonder, where are you, God? Why haven't you shown up? What are you doing? 
And that is not sin. That is the human condition that God understands. And in those moments, and I've been in those moments, there are times when I've simply said this. Holy Spirit, I don't have words. I don't even know what to say. Would you pray for me? And I believe he does because the Bible says that. And I take great comfort in that because I know without a shadow of a doubt that when the Holy Spirit prays for me, he is in praying in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son. They are in perfect harmony with one another. And, and Paul says that. He says, He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When the Spirit prays for us, it is in perfect alignment with what God wants. Some of you remember a Bible study several years ago written by Henry Blackaby and called Experiencing God. And I learned something from uh, Mr. Blackaby in that phrase, in that study. He said sometimes he says this in his prayer, and this is pretty much a paraphrase. He says, Father, if what I've just asked is outside of your will, please cancel my request. I have actually prayed that. Lord, if I'm asking something that you just look at and go, not going to happen, just cancel my request. But then he goes on, he says, but Father, if I've not asked you for enough, please do all that you want to do above and beyond what I've asked. For us as humans, I think that's a balanced approach. God, the Holy Spirit, though, doesn't need to put any conditions on his interceding prayer because he's in perfect alignment with the Father. He searches our hearts. He knows us. He prays in accordance with God's will. He's always in agreement with the will of the Father. His intercession is another aspect of molding you and me to be like Jesus. Because God works through the struggles in our world and our individual lives to mold us into being more like Jesus. Don't forget that. God works through the struggles of our world and our individual lives to mold us to be more like Jesus. Verses 28 to 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's go to that next point, the, the, the fourth one there. There we go. That's what we need. Here's my second please don't statement. Please do, don't use the first phrase of Romans 8.28 as a platitude or a cliche and think you're applying God's word correctly or helping someone in a difficulty, more damage has been done to the heart and soul of hurting people by misusing this verse. Do not say to a person who's going through a hard time, we know that all things 
that we know that in all things God works for the good. That doesn't help. Person who's been diagnosed with a serious illness, don't walk up to them and go, God works all things to the good. That will not help. And that's not what Paul's saying here. You know, the person who's just been laid off or the person whose marriage is blowing up or the person whose puppy just died, don't say, well, God works all things for the good. A friend of mine played on a basketball team. He was the starting point guard. They had lost every game of the season. Last game, final game of the season on a Friday night at home. And there were three seconds left in the game, and they were down by one point, and they had the ball out of bounds on a timeout. And the coach gets them together, and he points to my friend. He says, I want you taking the final shot. Senior year, this is the chance. They, needed, they, they just needed to win. The ball goes in, bounces in. First guy gets it, pushes it off to my friend, takes the shot. It hits the rim. Boom, boom, boom. Falls to the floor. My friend said he collapsed in the middle of the court. Some kid ran up. Don't worry, all things work together for good, and runs off. That's what I'm saying. That didn't help. He would have been done better to run up and, and fall on the floor and hold that guy in his arms and say, you know what? I love you. God loves you. We'll get through this. This, this is, life is bigger than this game. No, we know that in all things God works for the good. Listen to the whole verse. For those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. God loves you so much that He uses every circumstance to make you more like Jesus even when it hurts more than you'll ever know. He doesn't expect you to ignore the pain. He doesn't expect you to ignore the heartache. He just wants you to know that He loves you and He's there and He's with you in the struggle and He's always at work. we got to remember, the, guy, the people that first got this letter in Rome around 60 A.D., were people that were living for Christ in extremely trying times, in extremely trying circumstances. So they would understand, and you and I should understand, that, that, that these people had already put their faith in Christ. They had already believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And Paul says, I want you to remember God's not bound by time and space. He says, look, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God was at work before time and space planning and preparing to conform people to His image. Paul says He predestined. He determined ahead of time the people who followed Him would be conformed to the image of His Son. Now be very careful with this. Don't think that God somehow before time played a cosmic game of I love them, I love them not. Do you remember that game when you were a kid? Moving into early adolescence, you had a crush and you found a wild daisy and you held that daisy and you started picking the petals. She loves me, she loves me not. 
she loves me, she loves me not. And if the last one was she loves me, that's it, it's true love. And then some people would say you crushed up the daisy and all the little things with all the kids we were going to have, you know. God didn't do that. God didn't look down through time and space, history at Scott Howington and go, he loves me, he loves me not. Oh, he's going to love me. No, that's not what God did. Don't reduce God to somehow picking and choosing. I believe what was predestined was God's plan, predetermined so that anyone who put their faith in Jesus would be ultimately conformed to his image, molded in his image, shaped in his image. Have you ever been to the Museum of Science and Industry with kids or with grandkids? And they've got those little machines that you put. It used to be 50 cents. Now it's like $3 in. And you put them in and the machine whizzes and rolls and everything. And all of a sudden it presses out and, and here comes a wax dinosaur. That, that wax had to be melted before it could be molded. And sometimes you and I do too. And, and, and that's, a, that's, that's the heat process, and, and it has to happen to us. God said, I want people who determine, I'm going to predetermine anybody who puts their faith in my son, one day I will mold them to be like him. That's his master plan. Because God has something better for us. He says in Philippians 2.15, one day we will shine like stars in the universe. You see, God works through the struggles in our world and our individual lives to mold us and to be more like Jesus. Paul says, those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He says that in past tense. In God's eyes, when you and I have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are glorified in Christ. Oh, we're still in the process of getting there, but that's how God sees you. He sees you as valuable. He sees you as worthy. He sees you through the blood of his Son. What do we do with all this? I think first we need to keep things in perspective. Our world is a mess. It's broken. We all get that. People are a mess. We're broken. Oh, yeah, we see glimpses of good every now and then, and we celebrate that, but we also see brokenness of people living for themselves, and we get that. This world and this life is not all that it should be. That reality can do several things. It can cause us to look inward. Sometimes we look at the brokenness of our world, and we wonder sometimes in our, in our weakness, where's God? And, and what it causes some of us to do is to look inward and say, well, I will figure it out on my own. I, uh, or it can cause us to do the opposite and say, I can't figure it out on my own. And so I need to look upward and seek God because I do believe he'll one day set things right. And how we choose deals with how we see our trials and tr struggles. Whatever you are facing right now, whatever you are going through in this moment, has not somehow caught God off guard. God's not surprised. As someone said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? God just doesn't go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. 
I guess they're going to have to figure it out on their own. I don't believe for a minute God made you or your loved one sick. I don't believe for a minute God made you or your loved one lose their job. I don't believe for a minute whatever difficulty you may, you, you may be facing, God made it happen. But I do believe in the middle of that trial, God's at work. He's refining you. He's making you better. And you can respond to that difficulty by simply saying, sorry, God, I'm done with you. I'm done. If this is who you are, I'll make it better on my own. And there are those that do it, and they walk away, and I believe God grieves. And what's interesting, those over the years when I've seen people decide to do that, the problems don't go away. They don't get better. They're still there. I believe what God wants is for you and me to lean into the struggles, to lean into the struggles, to not try to medicate the pain to make it go away, to not try to do things that just make me feel better and, and, and to pretend that I'm not struggling. No, accept it. Walk through the struggle. I've never run a marathon. I don't plan to run a marathon. I don't have on my bucket list to run a marathon. But they tell me, those people who've done it, that at certain point in running a marathon, no matter how much you've trained, at a certain point you hit what they call the wall of pain. It's somewhere around 19 or 20 miles. And the wall of pain is just that, according to those who've run it. Every fiber of your being aches. And those who've run marathons say there's only one way to get through the wall of pain. You keep going. In life, we hit walls of pain. And we can stop and we can quit and we can go to the sidelines or we can keep going. And I think God wants us to keep going because it's in the keeping going that we reveal first to ourselves that we are trusting God in the struggle. And if we're, tr and, and if we're trusting God, we know that somehow God will use my pain. Somehow God will use my misfortune. Somehow God will use my groaning to make me better, to make me more like Jesus. And it's a process. It's a marathon. And those who've come out on the other side of the storm, and I encourage you to get to know people who have come through a storm, they will tell you that in sometimes very big ways God showed up. And in sometimes very little teeny ways God showed up. And sometimes in the mundane of life, God showed up. Because He was always there. That's the way of faith and hope in a God who works through the struggles in our world and our individual lives to mold us into being more like Jesus. And then we know the best is yet to come. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for this passage and that Paul has written, these things he's written that remind us that you are a God who's at work. You understand the decay of our world. You understand our groaning. You understand our struggles. And in the midst of it, you are there. And when we feel we can't go on, Holy Spirit steps in and prays for us and intercedes for us. Because God, you are working. You are molding us and shaping us. And sometimes it doesn't feel good. But we have a hope in Jesus Christ.
that the best is yet to come, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.